BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, May 30th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Stitcher, Swell, or on any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses in science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming, or on DVD and CD the old-fashioned way. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace, without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses called Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. So on this week of the show, I was able to revisit one of my favorite subjects, or visit one of my favorite subjects, and that is, how do we know we can actually trust science? Is there any validity to what is often referred to as the postmodernist view that scientific knowledge is embedded in a cultural context and ultimately cannot escape from it? And so if that's true, is anybody ever really an objective expert about anything or is everybody's views determined by the society in which they live, their gender, their race, all these other extraneous non-scientific factors? So it turns out there is a truly masterful book about this that is just out, and it's by Harry Collins. He's one of the founders of the field of science studies, and he's currently based at the University of Cardiff in the UK. And it's called, Are We All Scientific Experts Now? And what he does in the book is he sort of takes apart the notion of expertise and explains why ultimately scientists really do do something that is special, that should be taken seriously. What's really noteworthy about this argument is where it's coming from, because as a founder of science studies, as a sociologist of science, Collins is part of a movement that we generally think of as having undermined expertise by, again, talking, like I, like I mentioned before, by talking about how culturally determined it ends up being. And yet here, Collins is defending scientific expertise, defending science, saying we need to listen to it. So on the show, I asked him, if he changed his views, and here's his response. 
the sociologists of scientific knowledge were always interested and, and lovers of science, which is why we went to study it. I'm not saying everybody in the postmodernist movement were lovers of science. They probably weren't, and, and probably the work that we did also fitted in with the the two cultures argument, the humanities against the, the sciences. And I think we got corralled or recruited into that argument, but that's not part of what we were doing. I still think the work we did was really superb, and I don't think any of it was wrong. The only thing that was wrong was the overinterpretation of it to be an attack on science and the use of it to uh, go along with this romantic anti-technology view. It's that that I'm reacting against. So what do you make of that, Andre? Well, you know, this book, I think, is really timely because I do feel that now that everybody gets their information from the Internet, there is this real danger of people think, thinking that they can, you know, second guess what their doctors are saying in the office because they've read a couple of even, you know, original articles uh, from PubMed. You know, my husband and I have fallen into that trap when it comes to the care of our son. You know, all of a sudden we, we go to PubMed, we read a whole bunch of articles, and then we go and try to tell our pediatrician what to do. And it's horrible. <laughs> and we <laughs> no, recognize no. that because <laughs> there's a reason why he has, you know, 10 years of training and a lot of experience and we don't. Um, so, so I think this book is really timely. And, you know, I, I am really interested in hearing what Harry Collins has to say, because as you mentioned, rightly so, you know, he is part of a movement that you know, has been thought to undermine science and scientific expertise, I should say. So, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a great time to talk about this. Yeah. And, and, and as, he'll, as he'll point out, you know, the, the original book that started all this questioning expertise and how objective are scientists was by Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in 1962, gave us the word paradigm shift. And Thomas Kuhn was not a person who was arguing that we shouldn't trust scientists, right? He was actually just explaining how things actually work, but he still thought science was valuable. So basically, Collins is kind of in that original tradition. He just thinks that the tradition, as we'll see, he, he just thinks it's been taken a little too far by some radicals uh, for a variety of reasons. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, let's talk about some science in the news. Um, there's one New York Times article that's been getting quite a bit of play. It's an opinion piece um, in which the author is talking about the lack of clinical trials in the elderly population. So let me just back up a, a second and say that recently um, a, an article in the Journal of General Internal Medicine has come out that is a meta-analysis essentially of clinical trials. And it looks at 109 phase three or four clinical trials. So these are clinical trials, you know, on human subjects that are almost sort of the last stage before a drug gets approved. Um, and it turns out that 20% of these trials excluded people who were over the age of 65. And what's even more concerning is that almost half, 46% of these trials had some kind of exclusion criteria that disproportionately affects the elderly. So for example, comorbidity. Um, so as you get older, the chances of you getting a particular disease goes up. So your chance of having two or more diseases is much higher than if you're younger. So you might think, well, this is the reason for this is, and Big Pharma will tell you, it's because we want to keep our clinical trials pretty clean. We want to make sure that whatever effect we're seeing in the population is coming from the drug that we're trying to study, not, you know, some interaction with some comorbid disease or something else that muddies the water. And so, you know, that makes sense from a scientific perspective. It makes sense from a business perspective because the clinical trials are designed to evaluate one particular drug and they want to see, obviously, a positive trial. Um, and muddying the waters can, can create a negative trial 
even though the drug can have some efficacy. But the problem is, is that the way in which elderly people react to drugs can be very different from the way in which the cohorts that are studied react to the drugs. And the biggest issue here is one of dosing. So, you know, we know that any chemical can become a poison if you consume too much of it, right? Well, in the case of elderly people, the way their kidneys and livers function and metabolize uh, these drugs can be different. So a dose that is safe for someone who's a little bit younger in the peak of physical condition can be unsafe for someone who's older and whose liver isn't functioning quite as well. So this is a really big issue. So I'm first, I'm shocked by this. What is What is the reason? Is it because the trial's because the science gets more complex, the trials have to be bigger, have more subject in them, that's more expensive. Is that the reason they've been doing this? Yeah, that's a big reason. So, you know, these trials are very, very expensive, many millions of dollars, uh, you know, in some cases. And so the pharmaceutical companies that are developing these drugs are, of course, motivated to show an effect. Now, the more diverse your population, the larger your effect has to be, right, to account right. for the variability in your subjects. So, um, if you can limit it to, you know, a certain swath of the population, you're more likely to get uh, a bigger effect. But, you know, this also makes big pharma seem like, you know, our evil, uh, the, the evil genius out there that's trying to just take our money and, and run with it. But the truth is, is that they also want a, a pretty pure response. They want to make sure that whatever effect they're getting really is real and is not, you know, a side effect of some other interaction. The more complicated your subjects, you know, pool is, the more likely you have to have some of these interactions. And so, you know, I, I can see where they're coming from in terms of the science. But, you know, in terms of the application to society, this is really where they're falling short. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, this is, this is really huge. We have, you know, growing elderly population in the world. And ultimately, you got to think there's some people in pharma who realize that, hey, this is how I beat my competitors is by doing better science. And isn't that what pharma is all about, right? Is, uh, so this is a way to do better science. Yeah, it's hard, but I mean, the science they're doing is always hard. Yeah. And I mean, you might think, oh, this is great that we're talking about this issue that this, um, sort of analysis just came out. But the truth is, is we've known about this problem for, you know, many, many years. In fact, there was one uh, meta-analysis that I read that was published in 1992 that looked back at the history of clinical trials all the way back in the 70s. And, you know, this is an issue that has actually become more and more pronounced. Um, and even after 1992, you know, it's become more and more pronounced. It's not like it's gotten better, even though we've known about it for, you know, 20 odd years. Wow. That's, that's really surprising. And I just as I mean, maybe the... Isn't there a role for like the FDA to say, all right, you know, we're not taking these over simple uh, studies? I mean, the FDA is ultimately approving uh, drugs. So do, they are looking very closely at the science that is used to prove the drugs work. Maybe they should be requiring more diverse study samples. I mean, I would say that that's one way of going about it. I actually think it should come from the funding organizations themselves. So I think the the government government organizations that fund some of these trials, like the NIA, should be more picky about, you know, the, the types of people that are included in the trials. Um, and, you know, somehow, I think maybe pharma companies should be rewarded for, you know, addressing this issue instead of punished necessarily um, down the line. You know, I always, you know, the, the carrot versus stick Got thing. It. Got it. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating, huge thing that I did not realize was happening. So thank you for unpacking it for us. And so let's go on to something a little bit more Light, <laughs> Andre. I know you. You've seen this. Oh, that's a good pun yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I didn't even mean to. Okay, yes. It's very light. It's very light. So there's this totally viral thing going around in a publication called National Report, 
and the thing is entitled, it's an article, it's entitled, Solar Panels Drain the Sun's Energy, Experts Say. And look, it is a spoof, S-P-O-O-F, National Report, is a, is a satirical website, and if you read the article, you would have to be very deficient not to notice that this is a joke because it says the research was funded by Halliburton and they make up these crazy pseudoscientific terms like, quote, forced photovoltaic drainage, which is the phenomenon they claim it there. And let me just read you a quote that should have also given it away from an alleged scientist who did the alleged study. Here's the quote. Put in layman's terms, the solar panels capture the sun's energy, but pull on the sun over time, forcing more energy to be released than the sun is actually producing. So, okay, you're laughing. This is nonsense, (laughs) right? Um, But what's scary is that this thing has been very viral, more viral than anything I've written, at least. You know, 300,000 Facebook shares and likes. I And if you look at the tweets about it, it's not... A lot of people are laughing, but not everybody's laughing. I mean, a lot of people are just sending it out, you know, spreading it out. So I think a lot of people are actually believing this, which is a little sad. Well, this also kind of touches on, you know, one of those other recent studies of, of how people often share things without reading them. Yeah. You know, you might have seen this too, that, you know, we, we often post a share. It doesn't mean we have actually read the article. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, here you go. But yeah, I mean, the truth is, of course, is that the sun is going to burn itself out, but we have about five billion years to, uh, f- you right. know, figure out an alternative place to live, uh, before that happens. But, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it, I agree with you that it is, sad that people are sharing this without realizing it's a parody. But I I hope uh, that the vast majority of people really do think it's funny because it is so ridiculous. Well, one of the people who was in the know, and I think this was on Twitter, and I I saw it anyway, uh, pointed out something that is kind of uh, important to note, which is that if this were true, if solar panels were doing this, then don't you think plants would have been doing this <laughs> and, and doing it more, right? And doing it for longer, right? The plants would have taken out the sun, not the solar panels. At least that, I mean, that, that stands the reason for me. If you're going to occupy this crazy, uh, upside down world to begin with, then that's the logic that works. Well, Chris, maybe that's why plants don't rule the world, that they have this, <laughs> they, they're too, too worried about <laughs> yeah. Yeah, shutting out the sun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that, that is, uh, enough said about that, really. Okay. It's just, it's just that apparently satire can go really far and sometimes too far in the ears and minds of some people. Um, so with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Harry Collins. So since you're a listener of Inquiring Minds, chances are you want to continue learning throughout your lifespan. And that's why here at the show, we are huge fans of The Great Courses. Indre has even done a great course herself. If you don't know what The Great Courses are yet, somehow, uh, this is an organization that's been in production for over 20 years. And what it does is it offers these great lectures by top professors and thinkers who are experts in their field, which you can, you know, watch at home, consume at home, at your own pace, on your own timeline. And we all recently watched one of their courses called Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation by Eastern philosophy professor Mark Musi of Rhodes College. Now, I teach musicians how to use neuroscience to develop more effective practice strategies. And the first thing I teach them is that we are notoriously bad at multitasking. Every time we try to look at what's happening in the brain, when people try to do two things at once, we find that the brain is just less efficient. We're we're inefficient on both tasks. Um, So we just can't multitask. And yet we live in a world in which that's what we're always trying to do. 
So in this course, what you're going to learn is how mindfulness, when it's correctly practiced, offers these great benefits for improving your mental functioning and disciplining yourself and realizing that you can focus. You don't have to be all over the place all the time. You can slow down. You can appreciate the now. Uh, and you don't have to get woo-woo and religious about it. You can or you cannot. Mindfulness is actually based on scientific research. It is not just philosophy or religion. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. You can order Practicing Mindfulness and Introduction to Meditation and get 80% off the original price. But this savings is only available for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Harry Collins, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, guys. Nice to be on the same line as you. You bet. Well, so first, I want to thank you for writing your new book, Are We All Scientific Experts Now? It is just this little book, 130 pages, but I think it makes a profound statement about the place of science in our society. And frankly, I think it's required reading for everyone. So so call this an endorsement. I really like the book. Well, thanks. It's, it's It certainly is a book that takes a position that not many people are putting forward these days. So let's start with some background so people can know how to approach this. You've written, in the end, the book is a robust defense of scientific expertise, but what's surprising is that is where it's coming from. It's not what we've come to expect from someone in your field of science studies. In fact, people have thought that science studies is at war with scientists, and they've been fighting a lot. So to start out, I guess we need to hear a little bit uh, about what science studies is and how it seemed to really challenge scientific expertise before we hear how you then come back to defend scientific expertise. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It, um, science studies really started in about the 1970s. Um, you can tell different stories about how things start. Uh, I, would, I, I like to think as a sociologist, it started because of the 1960s. In the 1960s, everything changed. You know, hemlines went up, the bowler hat went out. No, people stopped wearing trilbies and people stopped wearing ties. And I think at the same time, I remember as I was a young academic at that time, and I remember feeling a tremendous freedom to, to think new things. It was a kind of societal change. So you can tell the story that way, or you can tell the story in terms of the uh, movements uh, scholarly precursors, books like Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Re Structure of Scientific Revolutions, set the scene for us to think a little differently about science because he said that you know science wasn't all straightforward logic. There were these paradigm changes. Uh, critics of the book called it mob psychology. I don't think it was, and certainly not wasn't what Kuhn was trying to say. But it did again, open up the ground for more more interesting things to be said about science than had been set up to that date. With very few exceptions, what had been set up to that date was science is the most perfect form of knowledge and what philosophers and sociologists and historians have to work out is what kind of society supports that best kind of knowledge and what is the special nature of that best kind of knowledge. After the 60s, the beginning of the 70s and so forth, we began to say, what really goes on in science? And that's how the new subject started. And you were a founder of it. Uh, that's how you describe yourself in the book. And initially, you know, it wasn't about taking science off its pedestal, but then it came to be supportive of the idea that everybody's got expertise, not just scientists. Is that right? 
Um, the line that everybody's got expertise came much, much later. We're talking about two okay. or three decades later. But at the beginning, what we were doing was saying things. Well, let's 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 really let's get away from the mythological picture of science, the the myth of what goes on in the lab, and let's go and talk to scientists. So the thing that I did, and I started this in uh, 1971, was to look to see how people managed to learn to build a new kind of laser. It was called the transversely excited atmospheric pressure carbon dioxide laser and uh, T laser for short, which is nice for an Englishman. And I went around laboratories who were building these things, learning to, looking to see how they learned to build them and discovering that quite a few people had tried to build one, them and failed. Well, that was interesting. You know, people were trying to build a scientific instrument and failing to build it. And it turns out only managing to build it if they spent some time with somebody else who'd already built one successfully and learnt the tacit hidden techniques for doing it. So when one wrote like that about science, you were already saying something a little bit different. Science here was being fallible. The scientists were trying and failing and they were having to learn to do things by social intercourse with their colleagues rather than just looking things up in books. So that was new. That was 1970. And then it turned out to have really quite substantial implications, this idea that an experiment could only be done successfully if you learned the tacit knowledge. Because the normal, normal way we thought about science up to then was that if you want to know whether a scientific experiment is valid or not, you repeat it. Well, okay, that still went on. People tried to repeat experiments. But what you found is when somebody repeated an experiment and didn't get the same result as the first guy got or the first girl got, the first scientist said to the second scientist, well, that's because you haven't done the experiment right. And it was difficult for the second scientist to argue back because, in fact, it's hard to know whether you've done an experiment right unless you know what the result's supposed to be. And if the result is what you're arguing about, how do you know whether you've done it right? So you have these two groups of people. Some people who've done an experiment and found one kind of result. Some people have done the same experiment, found another kind of result. Who's right? And you can't tell just by looking at the experimental apparatus. It turns out that you, the way people actually make up their minds are in a very rather mundane kind of way. Who's the best scientist? Who's at the best institution? Who do I trust? Who's got the best track record? And science begins to look much more ordinary. So, as I like to put it, that did level the academic the, or the cognitive terrain. It leveled the cognitive terrain down a bit. Science's mountain became a bit eroded uh, and science's pedestal did get uh, was rocking. But at the same time, people like me who were doing this work weren't in any way against science. We had no anti-science aim. We were just interested in how science worked and we were looking at science because we loved it. And that's how that's how it started. Yes, I was one of the founders. I was one of the first people to, to, to do actual field work of this sort. Mm -hmm. And I carried on doing it for uh, 10 or 20 years. So you also talk about how uh, science studies reflected what you call the zeitgeist of the 60s and 70s. Maybe you can tell us a little more about that. I mean, there were a lot of scandals uh, or people watching science fail 
in a number of cases, particularly with regard to maybe environmental kind of pollution issues or, you know, nuclear power, you know, failures, things like that. So they, so all this scholarship happened in the context of people losing their trust a little. Yeah, I think that happened a bit later. The stuff that I just described and stuff that I was doing and the stuff that my immediate colleagues were doing, we called ourselves sociologists of scientific knowledge, was much more in the tradition of philosophy. What we were trying to do was to say, look, these philosophers who describe ideal, logical, immaculate models of science are getting it wrong. Uh, you can actually apply socio- the sociology of knowledge to science. And that's what we thought we were doing. We were showing that you can do a sociological analysis of science. It was only later when the environmental movement caught on that this, uh, that the work we done, we had done became sucked up in well, two things really. It got it became sucked up in in the environmental kind of distrust of technology movement, and it became sucked up in the general movement known as postmodernism. Right, and so it ultimately then takes somewhat. I mean, somewhat of a radical form. At least there were some people you could never tell how serious they were who were suggesting that there was maybe nothing all that special about science, or that some things that we thought we knew from science were just another perspective. I mean, I don't know how how dominant that view ever was, but we certainly we certainly got the sense that it existed. Yeah, well, I think it was a it was a nice position to hold, uh, so long as nobody took it too far. I mean, it was time that the sciences got knocked off their pedestal. I mean, in the 50s, for example, you would see, say, let's say the iconic television program about science on British TV called Horizon. You would see a scientist wheeled on in a white coat. They'd look down the microscope and they'd say, yes, there we are. We can, we, we can see this is what it is. This is how it is. And that scientist would be allowed to pronounce on more or less any topic, even outside their immediate expertise. And, you know, it, it was a kind of magic. Uh, science were, scientists were a new kind of priest. And in fact, when you look closely at science and how science is actually done, it's much, much, much more difficult than that. The, the heroic stories of science, which you're all taught at school, seem to somehow take the work out of it. Uh, scientific discoveries happen instantly. They happen over very short time, times. There are eureka moment, moments. Somebody suddenly sees it. Ah, it's E equals MC squared. But that's not what work in a laboratory is really like. A typical Typically, science is born in controversy. Um, let's take a, an experiment which is very subject to this kind of treatment. The, Michael, the famous Michelson-Morley experiment which is supposed to have shown that the uh, velocity of light was a constant. In fact, it didn't, because Michelson and Morley didn't complete the experiment in a way that they would have needed to do to show that it really was, the velocity of light was really a constant. They needed to carry it out at four seasons of the year to make sure that what they weren't seeing was some sort of interaction between the movement of the Earth and the movement of the ether. But they didn't do that. And they didn't do it because what they'd failed to do was use the interferometer as an Earth speedometer. So they weren't really very satisfied with it. But if you read the history of, you know, the history books, it'll tell you this experiment was done in 1887. It showed that the speed of light was a constant. This was a puzzle for many, many years until Einstein came along with the theory of relativity. But if you look at, look at what actually happened, people were arguing about that experiment right up to the 1930s. 
And in fact, the later experiments that were done uh, in the 1930s by Miller, for example, seemed to show that there was a very slight change in velocity of light according to the direction in which the interferometer was pointing. But those experiments were just ignored. So that's sociological, you see. One set of experiments were ignored. Another set of experiments were believed. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say anything about the Michelson-Morley experiment being wrong and relativity being wrong. I'm just saying it's all a lot more complicated than the old models was, would suggest. And it was time that those old models were, were knocked down. It was time that that kind of model of science was knocked from its pedestal. And it's time that we started to understand science much better. And without this new understanding, we just wouldn't understand why scientific controversies take so long to settle. 50 years or something for a, for a typical scientific controversy. We'd still be puzzled about that. But now we understand this so much better, we can, we can see where science fits into our world much more clearly. Okay, well, so let's move on then to, to the project of the book with that context laid out. And let's talk about what you call the third wave of science studies, um, where you're sort of redefining um, a version of scientific expertise that we can bank on and showing that not everybody has it, that it is something sort of special, um, which is sort of, I guess, a reaction to some people going too far in the other direction. Tell me why you, know, why you felt it was necessary to take this stand. Yeah, I think some of my colleagues were, were did have a bit of an anti-science attitude or an anti-technology attitude, had a rather romantic view of uh, some sort of unreformed state of nature that uh, science and technology was despoiling. And uh, it just seemed to me that we were moving into a position where at least in uh, the narrow academic world of my colleagues, there wasn't... It, it was ceasing to be possible to talk about uh, experts. If you said so-and-so is an expert, you were accused of being an elitist. But somehow or other, the ordinary people had the common sense to understand the natural world in a way that scientists didn't. And I began to think, what kind of world are we moving towards? I mean, I didn't want to live in a world that uh, didn't take account of expertise. What a horrible world that would be. I mean, for one thing, I wouldn't get invited to foreign conferences any longer because instead of inviting me, an expert in the topic they want talked about, they just invite whoever was walking past in front of the building. Anybody off the street <laughs> would do just as well if there's no such thing as yeah. expertise. And then more seriously, if you do away with the world of expertise, the notion of expertise, then who is it who's deciding on the truth? Well, it's the people with the power or the people with the money or the people with the best media presence. And I didn't want to live in a world like that either. I felt that the people I wanted to be making decisions about what was what in the world were people who spent time observing it, especially as the group of scientists I was studying, the gravitational wave physicists, it seemed to me were pretty moral people. They were really, really interested in the knowledge. They weren't interested in winning political battles. They were interested in finding out how the world worked. And I would prefer, however successful or unsuccessful it is, the people who are trying to find out what the world consists of are people with a sincere interest in it rather than people trying to win a political or a financial battle. So does this mean that you've actually gone back on the views that you originally had? in some of this uh, work on the sociology of science? 
No, a lot of people think it, you know, I'm a some sort of turncoat or something. In fact, a couple of the reviewers of, of the book who wrote very, otherwise very, very nice reviews shocked me by saying that I was being disingenuous by not saying that I'd uh, changed my mind uh, about the work I did in the 1970s. But I want to stress that there's no change of mind gone on at all. I mean, first of all, as I said right at the beginning of the interview, we were always interested in, and uh, the, the sociologists of scientific knowledge were always interested and, and lovers of science, which is why we went to study it. I'm not saying everybody in the postmodernist movement were lovers of science. They probably weren't, and, and probably the work that we did also fitted in with the the two cultures argument, the humanities against the, the sciences. And I think we got corralled or recruited into that argument, but that's not part of what we were doing. I still think the work we did was really superb, and I don't think any of it was wrong. The only thing that was wrong was the overinterpretation of it to be an attack on science and the use of it to uh, go along with this romantic anti-technology view. It's that that I'm reacting against. What I'm trying to do in the book is to find, and subsequent books uh, I'm writing, is to find a way of revaluing science, of putting science back into the centre of our society, but without rejecting all the great work that was done from the 70s onwards and without going back to the mythical 1950s picture of science. Well, I think that's sort of one of the morals that we come back to a lot on this show. But I just want to take a little excursion here and talk about your own expertise, because in the book, you tell this amazing story that I didn't, I didn't know. You Apparently, you studied these gravitational wave physicists so closely that you could effectively be taken for one of them, and other physicists couldn't tell that you weren't one of them when you answered questions and a real one answered questions. They thought you might be one of them. So you really had expertise. Is that, tell us about that. Yeah, that's, that's true. This is the new notion of interactional expertise. I mean, I spent between... I've been studying the gravitational wave physics uh, business since 1972, but I studied it really intensely from about the mid-90s to the early 2000s or the early 90s to the early 2000s, about 12 years. I probably spent more time with gravitational wave physicists than with any other group of professionals, including sociologists. I went to all the conferences and I spent hours and hours chatting with them over lunch and going having coffee and so on and so forth. And they became my very good friends and acquaintances. And towards the end of this period, I suddenly noticed something odd. I noticed that when I was sitting down having a cup of coffee or having lunch, I'd be talking physics with these guys and I'd be saying, why don't you do this that way? And they'd say, oh, Harry, we did think of that uh, a couple of years ago and we tried it out and then it didn't work for this reason or that reason. So the things I was asking, I was asking were not stupid. Um, just occasionally I'd say something that was right. You know, I'd win a bit of a technical <laughs> argument. And then I'd think, well, wait a minute, this is interesting. I'm a non-physicist, but I'm talking reasonable physics. People don't avoid me when I come to have, sit down at their table. They're quite interested in talking to me. It's like a normal physicist to physicist conversation. And I was also, I'd written a couple of books about artificial intelligence. So I was also interested in the, in the Turing test. I thought, well, let me test if I really could pass as a gravitational wave physicist. So we set up the experiment. We got a gravitational wave physicist to ask questions over email of me and of another gravitational wave physicist. We had an intermediary as the postman, so nobody knew 
who the questions were coming from, or no, no, sorry, we didn't know who the questions were coming from, but nobody, the, nobody knew who the answers were coming from. And uh, he asked, in fact, seven questions, and we gave seven answers, each of us. And then we sent the complete dialogues, questions and answers, to a group of nine other gravitational wave physicists and said, who's Harry Collins and who is the real gravitational wave physicist? I wasn't anonymous because everybody knew it was me taking part in this experiment and everybody knew who I was. And seven of the gravitational wave, and that, sorry, I should say the nature of the questions, that they were technical questions about gravitational wave physics, but uh, mathematics or calculations or algebra weren't allowed. Uh, they had to be, the questions had to be put in words. Anyway, so the answers went back and seven of the people who received the dialogues, the gravitational wave physicists who received the dialogues said they couldn't work out who was who. And two of them thought I was the genuine gravitational wave physicist. So that was pretty good fun. And nature wrote it up That's as a an article. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> they wrote it up as a sociologist, false physicist or something like that. I, it was kind of puzzling because I thought, well, why should I do better than the physicist? And it turned out it was most of it was due, due to one key question uh, where the physicist asked me, how would an interferometer interact to a wave with this kind of uh, polarity? And the, the real physicist knew the answer that was written in the textbooks, in the, written up in a paper and gave that, whereas I didn't know it. So I had to work out the answer on the fly. You know, we were only given about five minutes to answer. And my answer was correct, but different to his. And so they thought I must be the real physicist because I could have read what was written in one of the papers, but I wouldn't have been able to make it up on the fly. Well, so let's go from there to um, your, you know, what is the basis, if you could just lay it out in the book for, I mean, the central thing that you define as being unique about science that really does make it matter in the world and that really does show that it works? Well, there are two things in the book, really. There's that, but there's also the analysis of expertise. I mean, one of the important things in the book is the table of expertises. I mean, we call it the periodic table of expertises because we wanted to annoy as many people as possible. And uh, really, sociologists shouldn't be thinking up periodic tables, but we thought we'd, we'd uh, give it that name to attract attention. And what I've described to you, this expertise that I gained in gravitational wave physics – just by sitting around talking to people for a decade, I call interactional expertise. And that's one of the categories in the table. And then when you start thinking about it, there are all sorts of other categories of expertise, like contributor expertise, which is the normal kind of expertise you use to contribute to a field of science or some other specialism. Uh, and then there are bits of sort of less less interesting knowledge, like the sort of things you can read from beer mats or from popular science books, or even from going back and reading the literature, but without talking to scientists. And then there's a line for meta expertises, which is expertise you use to judge between experts and decide which one you trust and so forth. And the book is an analysis of all those kinds of expertises. Which ones can the public actually possess and which ones can't they possess and one of the most important divisions in the book is between interactional expertise the sort of thing i got by hanging around with the gravitational wave physicists and what we call primary source knowledge which is what you get from reading going back and reading the technical journals which you know you can just about do even as a lay person 
with a struggle if you've got a bit of a nous. You can get the drift of a paper, even if you can't follow its mathematical details, say. But that's good enough. And what we argue there is that these things are really very, very, very different indeed. Now, to show the difference, I'll have to give you a little anecdote. So the anecdote is that in 19... So my study of gravitational wave physics turned on... Uh, I started looking at a man called Joe Weber, who founded the whole field by building a fairly cheap apparatus in the 19, early 19, 1960s and 1970s and saying he'd found gravitational waves. Now, other people built apparatuses and said, no, you haven't. I, we can't see them on our apparatus, so you're wrong. And this followed the, the pattern that I described much earlier in this talk. Uh, people said to Joe Weber said to these other people who couldn't find the gravitational waves, well, that's because you haven't built the apparatus right. And Joe uh, and the, the people who had who built the second apparatus is said to Joe Weber, no, the problem is, Joe, you haven't built your apparatus right in the first place. And that argument went on and it was settled not in the favour of Joe Weber. And by about 1975, nobody believed Joe Weber any longer. But in 1996, Joe Weber published a paper in a physics journal which said that he'd found correlations between the gravitational waves he'd seen in the 1970s and another cosmic conundrum gamma ray bursts, or at least it was a cosmic conundrum at that time. And if this had been true, it would have been a Nobel Prize winning paper. And uh, there were the statistics. And if you read the paper, it looked like a pretty normal paper. Uh, and it looked right, as scientific papers tend to look right. And so I went around my colleagues in the gravitational wave physics world and said to them, what do you make of this Joe Weber paper, this 1996 paper? To my astonishment, I found that I was the only person who'd read it. Presumably, Joe Weber had read it while he wrote it, and presumably the editor of the journal had read it. But none of the gravitational wave physicists even bothered to read it because Joe Weber's reputation by that time, he'd lost so much credibility that people just weren't going to bother with his findings. And um, this is the difference between primary source knowledge and interactional expertise. If you get your information only from the journals, you can't tell whether a paper is being taken seriously by the scientific community or not. Joe Weber's 1996 paper just wasn't being taken seriously. But there's nothing in the paper that you could see that would tell you that. So you cannot get a good picture of what's going on in science from the literature. And I think that's one of the most important things in the book, because a lot of lay people read science, do, you know, if they're really engaged in some controversy or some piece of social action, they do go back to the original journals. They do go back to the original data and they try to interpret them. But you can't make the right interpretation without being part of the oral community of science. Well, this is what happens with, I mean, and this is why with vaccine denial and, and many other kinds of science denial today, I think you make such a strong point that they can go cherry pick the literature, they can Google search and they can find information and there's plenty of websites for them, um, but they're not equipped to pronounce what science is based on those sources and ultimately they are not in a position to challenge what's known. That's absolutely right. And in the case of vaccines, it's extremely dangerous. So in the case, let's say, of the South African case of Tarbo and Becky uh, refusing to distribute antiretroviral drugs to pregnant mothers in South Africa, which in retrospect we can see may have cost 10,000 
cases of unnecessary cases of HIV. Uh, but the reason he he justified his non-distribution of antiretroviral drugs was on the basis of what he was reading on the internet. And he told his parliamentary colleagues to read the internet and they'd see that there was a controversy about the safety of antiretroviral drugs. There was no controversy. There was a controversy on the internet, but there was no controversy in mainstream science any longer. It had long, long, long passed its sell-by date, even though it was flourishing on the internet. That's why it's so dangerous. And of course, the same goes for cases of other anti-vaccine campaigns, such as the case we had in uh, in the UK of a reaction to mumps, measles and rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine. And we still have the measles epidemic in this country, which was the result of people rebelling against injecting their children with MMR on the basis of some, what was again, just complete piece of scientific trash, which to the ordinary public, backed up by the newspapers who tried to balance their stories, looked reasonable. But if you knew the case or knew even the slightest bit about science, it was just ludicrous. And you also make a big study um, in the book of Climate Gate, and again, why people's popular sense of what happened there didn't equip them to make a judgment on the validity of climate science. Uh, as another example. Could you sort of unpack that one for us too? Sure. What I talk about in the book is the, so, the episode called Climate Gate, which was the bugging of the uh, University of East Anglia's uh, climatic research unit and the uh, broadcasting of their email traffic, which looked pretty shoddy, uh, unsurprisingly because, as we discovered in the 1970s, uh, when scientists are arguing – they argue in what's a fairly normal and mundane way. But to the general public, seeing this uncovered was a shock. It seemed to, uh, it was a reaction against that false model of science. Uh, it, it didn't fit with that idealized model of science, which we used to have in the 1950s and which was, for a lot of people, was still current. Um, it was no surprise to the sociologists of science, the sociologists of scientific knowledge. We knew that's what science was like. It didn't, it was nothing special. But to people who were trying to support a idealized model of science, it was a shock. And this incidentally is a very good reason why it's a, it's a good thing that science has been toppled from that 1950s pedestal. Because so long as it was on that pedestal, there's always the chance of this kind of back reaction, as it were. We've got to understand and value science for what it is, not for the fairy stories that are told about it. You know, one thing that's interesting about the the emails in your analysis is that th they were widely misinterpreted. Every time there was some specific thing that people thought they'd found in the emails, where scientists are talking about, I did this trick in this journal Nature, everyone thinks popularly it's some sort of deception. No, really, it's some sort of scientific art essentially, or skill that they've performed. And, and you'd have to be in the community of science to know what they're talking about. So everybody, all the emails were misinterpreted because of that. Well, some of the, no, some of the emails were misinterpreted because they did refer to things like, I carried out this trick to do this, to accomplish this, that, or the other. And the, what the scientists meant by a trick was, you know, a neat trick. Hey, that was a really good piece of science, whereas the public were interpreting it as something tricky and disreputable and underhand. So you've got to know the context and you, uh, in order to interpret what the very words mean, and you can only know the context uh, by, being, once again, being part of the oral culture of science, which, you know, means the public aren't in a position to interpret these things properly. 
But uh, I think more importantly, the whole set of emails gave the impression that scientists were acting shoddily, whereas actually they were acting perfectly normally. I mean, what you were getting a glimpse at was what I call the core set of a scientific controversy, the group of people who spending 24 hours a day thinking and arguing and sweating over trying to make get extract some certainty or some knowledge from what's always a very very me- messy situation and talking about it in the in the way that you're bound to talk about it that way but there's a strange phenomenon it's what i call distance lens enchantment you know uh Uh, electromagnetic radiation travels according to an inverse square law. It weakens as it uh, covers distance to the square of the distance that it covers. Now, information, I say, uh, travels according to a direct square law. It actually gets stronger and stronger as it moves away from its seat of creation, the core set, because nobody can see the subtleties and the nuances and the sweating that's going on. And so what you get is... As information travels further from the seat of creation, people get very simplified and very straightforward and very simply opposed stories about it. And it, and what in the, in the core set is scientific debate turns into heartfelt campaigns as soon as you move a little way away from it, like political campaigns. And, uh, that's one of the most important lessons of Climate Gate, I think, that what you getting a glimpse of with the difficulty of science in the core set. But people who were involved a little way away from it simplified everything and says, oh, this is these scientists are just being shoddy and careless. Not true at all. So, you know, you, you talk earlier about the, the zeitgeist and maybe we could turn towards uh, sort of the last last couple of questions. You talked earlier about the zeitgeist and how there was a time when people wanted to challenge science. And now, you know, you're trying to change that back to supporting science. I mean, do you, maybe your book itself represents the fact that the zeitgeist is changing and that we're, we're all realizing, gosh, we've gone a little too far <laughs> challenging science. And maybe we need to sort of start to t- start to reinforce it a little. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, it's a slow process among my colleagues. Um, uh, but I think we have to make choices. That's, uh, and if we choose, if we continue allowing the zeitgeist to devalue science, uh, if we get, if we devalue scientific attitudes and scientific values, we're going to find ourselves living in an unpleasant society. And I think we need to start valuing it's not so much the findings of science, it's the values of science, the selflessness, the universality, the honesty of the thing. That's what we need to value. We need to make those kinds of values the core. They are the core of the kind of societies that we really want to live in when we really think about it. Well, I think that's a wonderful uh, note to end on. And I guess uh, I'll just say, you know, Harry Collins, thanks for writing this really fascinating book. And connecting the field of science studies back to uh, defending scientific expertise. Uh, And thanks for talking with us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. One of the things that I kept thinking about listening to Harry Collins is the fact that as a scientist myself, I actually really like getting questions from lay people. You know, oftentimes I find that they can hone in on something that either I haven't been clear on in terms of the way I'm talking about it, or an area of of study that I hadn't considered before. So my interactions with lay people are really important to me and they're very valuable. But sometimes I get into these arguments where, you know, it's clear that the person just 
doesn't have the same expertise, obviously, and it's very hard for me to explain why we've chosen, you know, a particular route in a study, for example. Um, and it can be very frustrating when someone who has read, you know, two articles, um, feels as though they can have an argument with me about something that we've done that I've really spent, you know, years and, and decades training on. And, you know, in the book, we didn't get to talk about it in the interview, but he does talk about times when lay people really do have something to contribute, so-called lay people. And there's there's a couple of categories. One of them is is basically being a whistleblower, where you are an observer of science, like you're in a government agency, you might not be a scientist, but you see something being done wrong. <laughs> And you, that's a lay person's role. That's, you know, a time honored one. And you might just actually sort of say, hey, this is not right. You know, and that's that's very important. Another another role is where lay people are actually experts, because in effect, they're something like a farmer who is actually doing something that is quasi scientific and develops an expertise in, say, agriculture. Right. And it turns out that sometimes they're closer to it than the scientists who from a distance study it. And so they can actually catch experts on all kinds of things. So there's a lot of things for lay people to do, but then there's a lot of things that they can't do. And as he argues, one of the ones that they can't do very well is knowing what's going on within a community of scientists that they're not a part of because they're just not a part of it. They're not going to the conferences, right? They're not, you know. Yeah. And it's one thing to say, look, I don't really find your study that compelling. You know, I'm going to, I'm not, not going to change my behavior whatever. Um, it's another thing to say, you know, you are wrong because I've have this anecdote to tell you, or I've had this experience, or I've read this on the internet. Um, you know, those are two very different reactions. And, you know, I think the, the, the latter is the one that is really dangerous. And the latter, I mean, I've, I've written a lot about, well, I called it the smart idiot effect in a couple places, but basically, you know, it's, it's this danger of having a little bit of intelligence. And, you know, probably the people who are more inclined to do this are not, uh, are people who have college educations, right? They, they think that, they think they know something and they think they can evaluate, but they don't actually ever figure out what's going on within the world of science the way journalists do, who report on science, or the way sociologists do, who study science. They never do that. They just read this stuff. And they make up their minds. And that just turns out to be an incredibly dangerous thing to do from the outside. Yeah. And I think any scientist will tell you that there is a certain amount of humility that you have to bring to your work. And when a layperson doesn't have that humility at all and just has an arrogance about their own intelligence, you know, that's when I think the conversation becomes difficult. Right, right. So I, I'm, glad to, I'm glad to do this interview. And I thought it was really illuminating and how things have changed. Uh, since the days of the 1990s when scientists and people in the humanities or in sociology like Collins were, were enemies. Now, look, I mean, sounds like they're friends again. So we've watched that transition happen. Absolutely. So that's it for another episode of Inquiring Minds. And I want to thank you all for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, cookie recipes, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And we just want to remind you that this episode of Inquiring Minds was sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and all kinds of other subjects, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for unlimited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses, Practicing Mindfulness, an introduction to meditation. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. 
Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.